Last Sunday, I challenged you to pray morning and night. I encourage you to try to establish a habit, if that wasn't your habit, for the next three weeks to pray morning and night. And there were uh, some resources in the lobby to enable you to, to do that. In addition, uh, there were sermon notes and a folder hanging on the glass in the lobby. And today I would remind you that there are also a prayer exercise hanging in those folders on the glass in the lobby again. And I would encourage you, if you didn't get one on the way in, to get one on the way out uh, so that you can attempt the prayer exercise in the week that's ahead. My goal last Sunday was to try to answer the question, what is prayer? And my goal this morning is to answer the question, at least to the degree that I'm able, why pray? I mean, we had some hints last week to the, to the question, why pray, in the prayer the Lord gave us, right? We pray so that the kingdom of God will come. We pray that um, we will receive the forgiveness of God and remember that it's linked to the way we forgive others. We pray for daily needs, as instructed by Jesus, for the things that, that we need to survive. And we also pray to remind ourselves uh, day after day that this kingdom belongs to him. It's not our kingdom. We're not in charge. But the power, the glory, all of that is his because it is his kingdom. And in an attempt to answer the question, why pray a little more fully, I'd like to look this morning to the Gospel of Luke, to the 18th chapter, and to verses 1 through 14. So Luke 18, 1 to 14, we'll eventually arrive there. Before we arrive there, though, it's important, if we're going to understand the parables that are presented in Luke 18, to understand the context in which they're given to us. And so we need to read back to Luke 17 and figure out what's happening as Luke tells us the story that prompts him to insert these particular parables in this place. What's the continuity of thought here? What's happening? If we don't do that, we'll be tempted to just give these two parables a surface reading. But there's much more to them because of where they're uh, fitted into the Gospel of Luke. So in Luke 17, religious leaders and others are asking Jesus about the coming of the kingdom of God. When's it coming? How's it going to come? Those sorts of things. And that's a burning question in Israel in this day. Israel is under the domination of Rome. And so the thoughts of Jews of the day is they have this messianic promise that a liberator is going to come and reestablish the, the kingdom of God, the reign of God on earth, and the Messiah will be the, the one who brings this to happen. And so they are thinking this would be a particularly good time for Messiah to come because we're under Roman domination and we don't like that very much. And so messianic theories were rife in that day. There were many folks who proclaimed to be Messiah. And so Jesus comes, and it's clear that people believe him to be the Messiah. The religious leaders want to know, well, if you're the Messiah, when will the kingdom come? And then Jesus, in response to their questions about the coming of the kingdom of God, answers them in ways they're not prepared to handle. Okay, the first thing that Jesus says back in chapter 17 is that the kingdom will come in ways that are not visibly discernible. 
You're, you're not going to see it with your eyes when the kingdom comes. And I'm sure the disciples and others who were hearing his response say, well, that doesn't make any sense because we anticipate when the kingdom of God comes, there's going to be a giant, you know, revolution. And Roman oppression is going to be all thrown off. And, and if you can't see that, what can you see? I mean, it's going to be a huge, big thing when the kingdom of God comes. And Jesus says, well, you know, you're not going to see the kingdom come. And the proof of that for his disciples is the fact that Jesus had been teaching them that he was the hall bearer of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was present because Jesus was there in the flesh. God had come in Christ. And the very fact that Jesus is standing there answering the question about the coming of the Messiah, telling them that it's not going to be visibly present, is proven by the fact that the kingdom is standing right there in front of them. They can't see it. They don't know it. Jesus is there. The kingdom has come. He's been preaching the kingdom of God is near, and they're clueless about it. Jesus' words are proven true as he speaks them. The second thing he says is, there's going to come a day, not too long from now, when you will long for one of the days of the Son of Man. And what he means by that, the days of the Son of Man are the days where Jesus is walking on the earth right here. And in a little while, he won't be here. And the people who are living in that time, after Jesus ascends to the Father, are going to wish they could have just had a day on earth when Jesus was actually here. I mean, haven't you said that to yourself? Oh, I wish I could have been there at the Sea of Galilee when Jesus was teaching. Or I wish I could have been there when he was giving the Sermon of Mount. If I, if I just could have had one of those days, my faith would be so much easier. And Jesus is saying, a sign of the kingdom is the fact there's going to be a day coming the day we're living in right now, where lots of folks are going to say, if I could just have one of those days of the Son of Man. But he's going to say a third piece of this coming comment. He's going to say that um, in those days, it's going to be like the days of Noah or the days of Lot. When we read those verses, we're tempted to think in our mind that, that he's referring to rapture kind of language, but it's not really that. I mean, when people talk about rapture, they're talking about people being rescued out of the earth. But in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot, the righteous were rescued on the earth, to the earth. And so what, what Jesus is saying about the coming of the kingdom of God is that God is going to prosper and assist the righteous here on earth during those days in the same way he did for Lot and for Noah. Because God has a mission that we're involved in, and God will work to preserve the righteous for the sake of the mission in those days after Jesus returns to the Father. Now, by the end of the chapter, be sure, to be sure, he does get around to talking about the final proof of the coming of the kingdom, and that is his second coming. That is his second coming. He will validate all the teachings about the kingdom of God when he returns to earth, and he does, in fact, establish his reign. That's the setting for the parables that are coming. So this is Luke 18, 1 to 14, and I'd invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. Luke 18, 1 to 14. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, 
In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why, why is this lesson, these parables of prayer so important in the place that they're given in the, this point in the story of the Gospel of Luke. We have to remember that Jesus and his disciples are traveling on a journey. They're headed towards a destination, and they're on their way to Jerusalem, and things are not going to go well there. When they get to Jerusalem, uh, things are going to turn south in a hurry, and there's going to be great disappointment and disillusionment. And all those expectations of a grand revolution that throws off Roman overrule and establishes the kingdom of God through Israel, all those hopes are going to be dashed in Jerusalem. Things are not going to turn out as the disciples expect at all. And if the, if the disciples are going to be able to continue in the mission, if they're going to be able to keep doing the things Jesus has called them to do, they are going to have to persistently pray. They are going to have to do that. It's the only way forward for the disciples of Jesus. You say, well, how, how is that going to happen and, and why must it happen? Well, the clue to that is in, in verse 8, and we will get back to that in just a little bit. What what do the parables themselves say? I mean, the, the first parable, the unjust judge, the persistent widow. I mean, is this parable just saying, pray until you get what you want? Is that, is that what this is saying? And I think maybe at some level there's some truth in that. But I think it's only true if what you want is the will of God. 
if those two things line up exactly, then persist in praying in accord to the will of God so that you can see his will fulfilled. But what the parable is not saying is that God is like the unjust judge. This is a parable of comparison, of comparing opposites. Okay, it's not God is like the unjust judge. It is God is nothing like the unjust judge. Because the unjust judge only answers to avoid the harassment of the prayer, of the petitioner. But God, on the other hand, is quick to answer. He is, his eyes are always on the righteous. He knows what we're up against. He knows what we're doing. He wants to answer our prayer. And so the question is, why do we have to bother to persist if God already wants to answer our prayer? I and mean, what's the point of that? If, if God's predetermined to help us, why, why persist? And there's other passages of Scripture that maybe make us think the same way. There's um, the Matthew 7, 9 passage. You, you're familiar with it. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if a child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Or the, or the Luke 11 ending to the same teaching where, where Jesus says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask them? If, if God is already prejudiced in our favor, if he's already anxious to answer our prayers, why, why bother to persist in praying? Isn't just like telling him what we need once enough? Isn't that going to get it done? I mean, why, why persist? We've had experiences, you and I, where where God's actually answered our prayers even before we've spoken them, even before we've prayed them. And so if that's the case, if that's the nature of God, if that's the revelation of the character of God, why do we have to persist? And I think the answer to that comes in verse 8 of this passage, which we will get to in a few minutes. If we're going to understand what the parable means we will not understand it unless we have a firm grasp on the values and methods of this kingdom of God that Jesus has been describing in chapter 17. Unless we really understand what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God, these parables about prayer aren't going to make any sense to us. And there are just a few passages of, uh, passages of Scripture, I think, that help us get a very concise brief summary of what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, what the, what the attributes of kingdom citizens are. You folks all know John 3, 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he, he sacrificed. He gave his son. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. Sacrificial love is the hallmark of citizens of the kingdom of God. That, that's who kingdom citizens are. What's the methodology of that? Well, Philippians 2 tells us. Christ did not think his divine prerogatives were things he had a right to or was going to hold on to, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. Humbled himself and came as a servant. Humbled himself 
to death. Humble service is the methodology of the kingdom of God. Sacrificial love put into effect through humble service. When Jesus stands before Pilate in uh, John 18, Pilate is pressing him. Are you a king? Are you a threat to Caesar? Who are you? And Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would fight to protect me, to free me. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus refuses to grab temporal power to establish his kingdom here on earth. Let's face it, he already rejected that back right after his baptism in the desert, right? Satan offered him rule of all the kingdoms of this world, and Jesus said, no, that's not how the kingdom comes. That's not how this work will be done. When the disciples begin, when Jesus is arrested, to resort to violence, Jesus puts a quick stop to it. Remember, he heals the servant of the high priest's ear, and he reminds them, guys, if we needed to put a stop to this, don't you understand that I could call my heavenly father and he dispatched 12 legions of angels and this would be done now. And so Jesus rejects violence very, very clearly. And citizens of the kingdom of God reject violence because we as citizens are forgiving, merciful, compassionate, loving, and all those things persistently. The followers of Jesus, the members of the kingdom of God, reject violence, reject intimidation, reject, reject the, the exercise of power, reject prejudice or favoritism or corruption or immorality. Those things have no part in the kingdom of God because the kingdom comes through, in terms of methodology, humility, weakness, active compassion, truth, life-giving companionship. For us, we're the folks who put on display for the world to see the idea that love wins. For every true member of the kingdom of God, we are the poster children for love wins. But the problem is, we ourselves aren't completely sure we believe it. That's the value of the kingdom. That's the methodology of the kingdom. And yet we're just not sure that love wins. And we'd rather hedge our bets a little bit and be sort of loving, but sort of grabbing and dabbling in the methodology of the world and its systems. And part of that, part of the reason for that is we've just seen too much darkness. We have been surrounded by darkness, by manipulation and corruption, and it's hard to see our way through to the light of Christ, which calls us to an entirely different way of living, an entirely different methodology, an entirely different set of values. And because we're not completely comfortable in the light, and we're continually being squeezed by the world into its methodology, I think sometimes we're just tempted to borrow a few of the methods of the world to try to advance the kingdom of God. But it does not work. Now we say, well, we'll only just use these, these uh, worldly methods in small doses, just, just a little bit of them, because you have to get ahead. I mean, you have to move the project down the road. You have to, 
you know, use these principles, but that's not how the kingdom works at all. None of the systems of the world advance the kingdom of God. Only the principles and methodology of the kingdom of God advance the kingdom of God. One of the books I read in high school that I loved is J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And the, the premise of The Lord of the Rings is something like this. There's an evil guy who makes this ring that has control and great power. He doesn't tell everybody about this ring, but what he also makes are rings for the rulers of all the different races of people on the planet. So the elves get rings, and the dwarves get rings, and the humans get rings, and, and their leaders have these rings which help them influence and have control over their people. Okay, So they're very happy to have these rings because they make each of them more powerful leaders. What they don't know is the evil guy has a ring to control all their rings. And so the whole book of the Lord of the Rings is about how do we destroy that big ring? Okay, how do we, how do, we do that? And what happens through the novel is a fascinating thing. People come into possession of this most powerful ring, good people, and try to use it for good and don't realize it's a creation of evil. It can't be used for good. And if you try to use evil for good, it begins to corrupt the good people who try to use it. And so there's failure after failure after failure in the history of this giant ring because you can't use evil for good. You just can't, and yet to stop trying to do it. The only thing to do with evil is to stand against it, resist it, and do what we can by the power of God to destroy it. That's the message of the book. And my fear is that one of the reasons the church is ineffective largely in this day is because we have co-opted the world's methods in so many ways. And we don't even know all the ways that we are using the methods of the world to exert power or to manipulate or to attempt to do what we think is right in our own eyes because we've used the world's, the world's methods. I've, I've listened to someone say to me when I've questioned them about why they yell at a particular employee, they said, well, that employee's just used to being yelled at. I don't get any any response out of them unless I yell. And I'm thinking, do you understand the compromise that that involves? I mean, if you're the only person who has the potential to show them the love of the kingdom of God, and you're yelling at them like every other person yells at them, in order to get the response that you want, we've co-opted the methods of the world. Scott Daniels says, in the kingdom, the ends never justify the means because the means and the ends are the same thing. The way we walk demonstrates the goals, and they're all tied together. And, and while these parables on the surface of them seem to talk just about a methodology of prayer, what verse 8 is really telling us, what it really is asking us, is the most sobering question of all, and that is, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will, will anyone have resisted the methods of the world 
the influences of the world, the darkness of the world, to the point that anyone is still following me. Because the corrupting influence of the society is everywhere. We live in darkness continually, and we're continually being pushed and squeezed by this culture to become like everybody else, blind folks in darkness. If you go to Amazon and you Google best self-help books, what do self-help books try to teach you to do? How to win friends and influence people. Think and grow rich. 48 laws of power. Healing your emotional self. Who moved my cheese? I mean, it's about manipulation and influence and power gaining and removing guilt, whether you deserve it or not. And I believe what Jesus is saying through these parables is, if we're going to resist the corrupting influence of this world, we are going to have to start banging on heaven's door persistently, praying and pleading with God to help us know how to move forward because everything is arrayed against us. If these disciples are going to continue to follow the mission of Christ in the world, when everything around them looks like it's lost, they will have to persistently pray for the help of the Holy Spirit in order to move forward. And the same is true of us. If we're going to move forward according to the methodology and the principles of the kingdom of God, we must pray persistently, or we will not have the resources necessary to stand in this age. And, and how will we pray? Well, we're going to have to pray like the second guy in parable two, right? You know, the second parable is written to those who are righteously confident and who look down at other people. I don't know if you've been on any social media platform lately, but you can see the population of Christians who are confident they're right and everybody else is wrong and they look down on them. Right, So there's, there's a vast audience for this parable today. And I've got to say, if I'm really candid, I have to include myself in there. Because I most of the time feel like I'm doing pretty well in my Christian experience. And I most of the time feel like there's other folks around me who don't get it and aren't getting it right. And even if I'm not verbally condemning them, like the man in the parable, in my mind I'm making judgments. I'm making judgments and saying, boy... I'm glad I'm not as confused as that or, or this. And so when I hear this parable, when I hear the explanation of the parable given for those who are confident in their righteousness, I begin to realize my own lack of humility in this. Because there's always something wrong when I pray with self-satisfaction in my heart. There's always something wrong when I'm not sure that I need God or his resources. Because it's, it's pride that tells me I don't really need to pray, right? Pride tells me, well, you're doing okay. You don't really have a need. And, and your father will help you because he's predetermined to help you. And yet Jesus says, persist in praying. Persist in in praying. I think if we really understood how dangerous the culture was to us, we would pray. If we really understand, well, well, think about it for a second. How many hours a day is the world trying to get you to do things their way? I mean, every hour you're at work, every hour the television is on, every hour you're at school, there's someone trying to give you some different kinds of values for how you should live your life. And, and how many hours 
Are you being shaped by the Holy Spirit under the influence of the Word and His ministry? And, and just put those two in a balance. And over time, who's going to win? Can you understand why Jesus says, when I return, will I find any faith on earth? We've got 150 hours a week where the opposition is trying to squeeze us into its mold. Hebrews 4.16 says, Enter the throne room with confidence. Why? To receive the mercy and grace that you need in these times. We're being told we need this grace. We need this mercy in these days. We desperately need God's help if we're going to live faithfully in this age. And if we, if we don't think we need God's help, then what's likely is we've already compromised or accommodated. We've already decided that my current level of performance is the best that anyone has a right to expect of me, and so I give up. You know, this is just who I am. Deal with it. Uh, you can't expect me to be any better than I am. You can't expect me to really embrace those kingdom values all the time. You have to be realistic, right? And, and, and we have adjusted the values and the methodology of the kingdom to suit our behavior rather than adjusting our behavior by the power of the Holy Spirit to conform to his life and ministry. Isn't it Romans 12 that says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold? The only antidote to that is persistence in prayer. Persistence in prayer. And so I think the question that Jesus asked at the end of the parable, number one, is valid for us. When Jesus returns to earth, will he find faith? Will anyone have persisted? Will anyone have taken the values of the kingdom seriously enough and believed that this is the kind of kingdom that Jesus died to establish? Are we comfortable just establishing the kind of kingdom that we want with a little bit of kingdom of God and a little bit of kingdom of the earth thrown together to form some hybrid that's better than what we might have had if God hadn't showed up? Will, will Jesus find faith on the earth when he returns? Or will he find a church persistently praying that the Holy Spirit would examine us and correct us and enable us to actually be folks whose lives shout out, love wins. Will we be those folks? And, and the good news of the gospel for us today is that that is possible. That is what Christ calls us to, to be ambassadors of love wins, to be the embodiment of Christ in our day. But it will only happen if we will pray persistently. Why pray? So that love can win through us, right? As I finish this morning, I've asked Tanya to come and sing a song for our consideration and also to give you time to invite the Spirit to speak to you. And after that song is completed, then we'll pray together and 
uh, dismiss you to the snow, which is gently and beautifully falling right now, but hasn't accumulated very much at all. Jesus, I've forgotten the words that you have spoken. Promises that burned within my heart have now grown dim. With a doubting heart, I follow the paths of earthly wisdom. Forgive me for my unbelief. Renew the fire again. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Sing with me. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God. How I need you. Lord Jesus, we confess as your church that we have not always walked in your ways. We have done things we ought not to have done. We have left undone things we ought to have done. And we are humbly sorry. We acknowledge our need of you our need of your transforming grace. If we are going to be men and women of your kingdom through whom love wins. 
For those of us who are unconvinced that love can win, speak your truth to our hearts and teach us your ways. For those of us who are struggling with the methodology of the kingdom, hear our prayers and answer our prayers. Cause us, Lord, as we rebuild from the rubble of this past year, to seek your face, to follow your leading, to respond to all that your Spirit says to us, that truly we may be light in this world. And we pray this to your glory, now and forever. May the peace of Christ guard your heart. May the voice of the Spirit be clear to you. May the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life bring you joy and effectiveness in the tasks assigned to us as citizens of the kingdom of God, to the glory of God now and forever. Amen.